Open your Bibles, if you would, the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 28. This will be our last Sunday in Matthew's Gospel. Obviously, there's a whole lot of things in Matthew's Gospel we could yet uh, speak to, uh, and we will come back to some of those things in the future, especially those things regarding the, uh, the end of the age. Matthew talks about that. Uh, but this morning, we're going to close out our study of Matthew's Gospel, and we're going to uh, do so by looking at the words that Matthew uses to close out his Gospel. So, without any more time, let's look to the text. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Father, we do thank you for your word. Ask you to give us wisdom as we look to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Words that are probably really, really familiar to you. You've probably heard them spoken to and about many times, um, but certainly deserving of a fresh look. The passage we looked at basically has two parts. There's the disciples, what they do, and then there's our Lord and what he says. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at those two sections and then consider the implications for us, both corporately and individually. The first part is the disciples. It says in verse 16, uh, the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Eleven disciples. Judas was gone. It's an easy point to miss, um, but Matthew was clear. Judas is gone. Uh, it's so hard to believe, so tragic in every sense of the word, that one that walked in such intimate fellowship is now just out of the equation. He's not there anymore. It's a sobering thought, and it brings to our mind the reality of what happens when we just get careless, because that's all he did. He got careless and was not following when he should have been following. It's sad. It's sad. Would also note that this, this sentence, the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, follows immediately after, if you just read the preceding verses, to the account of the guards going to the high priest and you know, saying, basically, we, we lost the body. We don't know where it is. Um, I'm sure they're in trouble because it was the death penalty for their failure. They're Roman guards. You don't lose things like that and not, not pay with your life. And then, of course, if you know the account, you know, we talked about this last week. They had the chief priest saying, guys, here's what you're going to do. You're going to tell everybody that you fell asleep, and while you were asleep, the disciples came and took the body. And if that news gets to Pilate, we'll take care of it for you. You know, we'll speak on your behalf. Here's some money. You go do that. What's really significant is the word that is used to describe them going to the chief priest is the same word that describes the disciples going to Galilee. It, it, there, there's an implicit contrast there. Here you have these guards going to the chief priests, and the next thing you know, you got this crazy tale being fabricated with all of its complications and all of its, you know, tension and are we going to live, are we going to die, all that stuff. And it's a tale that's doomed to fail. 
It's a self-defeating tale. We talked about this in our, in our life group Wednesday night. What's wrong with the story? Well, you're going to tell somebody, while I was asleep, somebody came and took the body. How do you know you were asleep? I mean, it could have been grave robbers. could have been anybody, right? But the very fact that they say, while we were asleep, the disciples, that one, that one. That. No, you're obviously lying. So it's a story that's doomed to fail. But that's what happens when we, we live with the kind of deceit that they're living with rather than the simple obedience. So it's a contrast. The disciples are acting in simple obedience. Following Jesus is not always easy, but it's always better than the alternative. Right? So the disciples just do as Jesus directed them. Um, they come to the place that Jesus had directed them. And the reward for their obedience is they get to see Jesus. That's a pretty good deal, right? Um, and it says their reactions are varied. Some worship, and the, and the word would suggest they actually either knelt down or fell at his feet. There was a physical engagement in worship. And then it says others doubted. And the word that's used there is, is to waver between two places, right? It wasn't total disbelief, but it was doubt. And I don't know about you, but I'm encouraged by that because... You know, all, all the 11 had all seen the same stuff, pretty much, right? They'd all seen Jesus do the miracles. They'd seen him buried. They'd seen the empty tomb. They'd seen him, you know, they, they'd seen the same stuff, but they all had that, that just different personal take, and some of them it wasn't so good. They were like, um, maybe he is, maybe he isn't. I don't know. Um, but the beauty is Jesus' reaction, or his not reaction. He doesn't go, okay, you guys who believe, you go over here, and you daughters, you go over there, you get it figured out, and when you got it straight, then we can do something with you. He doesn't do that. Some believe 100%, rock solid, yeah. Others are like, uh, he accepts all of them. He, they continue to be included in this group with which he's working. It's a really, for me at least, a really encouraging picture um, of the Lord's patience with us, right? So we see the disciples and our Lord, his, their reaction, honest and sincere, and his acceptance of them, which then brings us to Jesus' words. And again, they're really, really well known, but not understood as clearly as they should. We call it the Great Commission. That's the title we've always given it. Is Jesus commissioning his followers to, that's the question. What exactly is he commissioning his followers to? And Jesus has two things. He speaks of his authority. We'll talk about that. And then he speaks specifically of what the disciples will do. And we normally, traditionally, have looked at Jesus' instructions as being four parts. The going, uh, the teaching or making of disciples, the baptizing, and then the teaching. Um, but we're going to look at that. But first, the matter of Jesus' authority. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. A couple of questions rise. First is, what does that mean? All authority has been given to me. What does that mean? And then the second question which is, why does he say that here? Why is that suddenly relevant for him to use that expression? Uh, as to what it means, the more you think about that statement, the more it kind of goes, wow, there's a lot there. When Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, that meant it had to come from somebody else. And we see our Lord making a distinction, not in not in person, or rather in person, but not in essence, between he and his Father, laying the groundwork for the understanding of the Trinity, which, no, we cannot explain. One God, three persons, can't explain it, but it's laid out in truth, and Jesus is laying that out here. 
I receive power from somebody, from his father. That's where the authority came from. And the fact that it is all authority means there's absolutely no restriction whatsoever. He has been given everything that is necessary to execute the will of the one who gave him that authority. That is what authority is by definition. It's a transference or a delegation of power or ability or capacity from one to another to do the bidding of the one that gave the authority. In fact, Jesus is saying he's received from his Father all the ability he ever could need to execute his Father's will. And of course, we know that Jesus said in places like John 8, 29, I always do what pleases him. The point simply being, the disciples hearing this, the disciples hearing this pronunciation that he has all authority, can have every confidence that this is coming right from the Father. This isn't coming simply from Jesus. It's coming right from the Father, spoken perfectly through the Son, who always walks in obedience. What Jesus does is move from his authority to give commands to the disciples to an expression of the Father's will. The whole purpose of Jesus citing this authority at this point is so that his disciples can know, have 100% confidence, this is coming right from, as we use the expression, the top. They have no reason to doubt or question. The line of transmission from the Father is seamless. That's pretty straightforward. Where it gets interesting is the second part, exactly what he says to do. Again, traditionally, we have looked at the Great Commission as four parts. The going, uh, the baptize, uh, going and making disciples, the teaching, the baptizing, and the teaching. You'd think I'd have them straight by now. But to help that, um, Alex, if you can pull that first slide up. This is how we have normally read, and you've probably heard you know, the Great Commission preached before, the going, the teaching, the baptizing, and then the teaching. Uh, the first word, teach, is the word make disciples. What this creates is a sense of equality and balance between the four points, and that's how we normally look at it. And then that leads to a prioritization of the first one, which is the going, which is why we normally read this as relevant to what class of people? Missionaries. This is the missionary text. It's talking about those who go someplace in order to do the other stuff. That's not consistent with the grammar of the text. The grammar of the text doesn't read this way. Alex, can we get the next one? This is how the grammar of the text looks. And if you can see, it's actually significantly different, right? Um, without going too far into the grammar, I gotta be careful because that's like what I love to do. Um, go and baptize and teaching are not verbs. They're participles. They used to be verbs. They're not verbs anymore. They changed. And so they're used to modify another word. The only verb is the word make disciples. So what does that mean? That means the Great Commission consists of one thing and only one thing, making disciples, which is a much broader task than simply sending missionaries to the far-flung corners of the earth, although that's certainly part of it. So that's how we want to look at it. We want to look at it by first defining what is meant by make disciples and then figure out how the other things fit in, the going and the baptizing and the teaching. So our first question is, what does it mean to make disciples? Now you can take that down. Thank you very much. What does it mean to make disciples? Well, 
The, the, the word comes, the word disciple comes from the Greek word mapitis, mapitis. Yes, it is where our English word math comes from. That might not make all of you happy. Um, here's the interesting thing. When you signed up for a math class so many years ago, some of us longer ago than others, when you signed up for a math class, you probably didn't know that the name of the class had nothing to do with the content of the class. The word math has nothing to do with arithmetic or addition or subtraction or any of the other more sophisticated expressions of that whole field of study, right? The word math has everything to do with the way you study it. Have you ever taken a math test and gotten the right answer because your gut just told you it was the right answer? No, that's not how it works. That's not how that field of study, if that happened, it was dumb luck, okay? It's not how that field of study works. There are steps you go through. The studies of arithmetic and geometry and algebra, and I'm going to stop there because I did, um, are there, it's deliberate, right? It's disciplined. It's consistent. It's built on one level of understanding after another. There's processes. Nobody wings it and gets it, right? Some get it easier than others, but nobody just guesses, right? So his disciples were being called, his followers were being called into this kind of disciplined pursuit of the Lord. Now here's a question. How many of you would, and again, pretend I'm not talking about this, pretend I'm a random stranger on the street, and if I were to walk up to you and say, are you a Christian, you would answer in the affirmative. How many? Okay. If I were to walk up to you and say, are you a disciple of Christ, would you react the same way? Or would there be a pause, like, mm, what am I being asked, or that sounds kind of specific. However, consider this. In the New Testament, Jesus' followers are described as Christians three times. Two of the three times are by pagans. And the third time is by Christians in reference to the way pagans react to Christians. Right? The word disciple is used to describe the follower of Christ over 260 times. And my favorite one my favorite one is where Luke writes in the book of Acts that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. They're being called Christians by the pagans. And then the next time Luke refers to this group again, he goes back to the word disciple. That was, hands down, far and away, no questions asked, the normative biblical way to, de to describe a follower of Christ. It is the normative word for a follower of Christ. So when we in the church allowed ourselves, and of course none of us are personally responsible, unless you're a lot older than I am because you weren't around back then, but not, that when the church allows itself, has allowed itself to use that term, we're letting the world define us. And we're putting us into simply another category of religions. You've got Christianity and you have Islam. No, followers of Christ, dedicated consistent, built upon discipline, followers of Christ. Yeah, our doctrine's important. Doctrine, sound doctrine is essential, but it's not what defines us. 
our traditions, our practices, the things we do, those are really important, but that's not what defines us. What defines us in our essence is that we deliberately, with focused intent, methodically, if I can use that word, follow the person of Christ. It's all defined by our connection with the person of Christ. That's what it is to be a disciple. You say, well, I thought the disciples was just the original 12, then they lost the one. No, it's used to describe that group, but it's also used to describe the 500 to whom Jesus appeared. Throughout the New Testament, whenever the band of followers is being described, the word disciple is used. So yeah, it applied just to the first 12, but it also applied to everybody that followed Jesus. That is the essence of the Great Commission, to be a disciplined follower of Christ and to invite as many other people along as we possibly can. And in order to do that, we have to go. Now that word is not to be taken first and foremost in a geographic sense. Obviously in some cases it is. If somebody's going to share the gospel with people in the far flung corner of the earth, it's a practical necessity, they have to go. They have to learn the language. They have to jump through all the hoops to be able to communicate that. But, but the geographic change isn't the essence. The essence of, of going here is to acknowledge that the key, the communication of the gospel to the unsaved is our responsibility. It's our task. I mean, there's, if you're at all like me, I would just as soon go out and live my Christian testimony and wait for the unsaved to talk to me. It may surprise you, but I'd really rather do it that way, right? Getting in people's faces, initiating that conversation is really not my comfort zone, right? Too bad, John. It's your responsibility. Yes, living a consistent Christian life is the first part of the task but then the willingness to initiate the conversation as unpleasant or difficult. I had the opportunity to help a guy build a house once. His name was Bill Wesson. I was so envious of that man. Um, he was a great guy to work for because the first stop every morning was the bakery. Yes, and we spent at least 45 minutes in the bakery every morning. And I was on the clock in the bakery. I love working for the guy. Um, and we'd always order apple fritters. You know, it was incredible. But he had the ability to draw a complete and total stranger into a conversation about the Lord like he was talking about the weather. He had that amazing gift, and I'm so envious of that man. You know, but the fact that he had that as a gift does not relieve me of the responsibility of making the deliberate choice to engage people in that kind of conversation, right? Now you say, well, John, isn't that easy for you? You're a pastor. No, it's not easy for me because I'm operating on the assumption that most of you are here this morning because you want to hear about the gospel, right? That makes it, this job for me is easy. But you stick me out there with a bunch of pagans that couldn't even be interested. It's very challenging for me. And I have to make a deliberate effort to rise to the equation, or the occasion rather, yeah, it's an equation too, rise to the occasion and get that conversation started, and we'll talk more about, but the point is it's our responsibility, and it's all of our responsibility. None of us are exempt, right? Our, the going means our responsibility, take the message. Baptize. How many here have been through 
a class or anything with me on baptism, right? This will not be news to you. It may be news to others. You know, many religions baptized in the first century. It was very common. The Jews baptized. Um, the Greeks in their mystery religions baptized. The people that did the Dead Sea Scrolls, they baptized like daily. They, they were really into it, right? Baptism, very common, right? Because we all have that understanding that we are, you know, guilty before God. We need that sense of cleansing. And so all religions did that, right? Christian baptism is totally unique. I mean totally unique, right? All of the other religions operating in the first century use the word bapto. That means it's where our word baptize comes from, or it's the stem from which our word baptize comes from. They use the word bapto, and that meant a ceremonial washing, right? So, for example, if you're talking to a, a Muslim today, because they do it a lot too, and you were, happen to be speaking in Greek, and you talked about their cleansing, they would use the word bapto. That's a word that meant cleansing, right? From the very beginning of the New Testament, that's not the word that's used. The word that's used from the very beginning of the New Testament, starting with John the Baptist, is baptizo. Same stem, but in intensified form. And I would be willing to bet that the first time they heard him use that word, they went, say what? He couldn't have said what I thought he just said. And when Jesus used that word, they, I couldn't believe that the rabbi just used that word. Because bapto is an intensified form of the word bapto. It is not used in religious settings. Baptizo is used when two guys go fishing and they don't come back. They drown. What the word means. The word means to drown. Christian baptism, as identified throughout the New Testament, and especially here in the Great Commission, is a baptism that focuses on death. Well, all you have to do is go to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. We won't take time to read it this morning, but you read Romans 6 and it all makes perfect sense. Paul says, do you not know we have been baptized into his death? Right? That as we have been united with Christ in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So through baptism, as disciples of Christ, followers of Christ, we're united to his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's why death is the essential component. And there is no newness of life without death first. If you want any more details, Paul does a really good job in Romans chapter 6. First seven verses, you'll have the whole thing. It's amazing the connection between death and new life. But that is the foundation of Christianity. And that's the reason why baptism is so important. To cement in the human mind, both in, in understanding by hearing and reading, but also through experiencing that there is absolutely no new life without death to the old man. Right? I go into the water not to clean the old man up, but to leave him there. And by the grace and mercies of God, I will leave him there. Now, he does swim well. He does respond to mouth-to-mouth -to -mouth resuscitation well. It's my job to keep taking him back and sticking him in the water by reckoning on the accomplished work of Christ. That's why baptism is so important. And then teaching them to observe. Teaching them to observe. Oh, and I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't pass this up. Jesus specified to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is even here laying the groundwork for the proper understanding of his relationship to the Father and his relationship 
to the Holy Spirit. And not, not that much has been said yet specifically through Matthew's Gospel about the Holy Spirit. But of course, the moment we get to the book of Acts, that dynamic changes. Jesus is laying the groundwork here so that there'll be no understanding when that happens. We'll talk more about that when we get to Acts. Then he says, teaching them to observe. Now, we mentioned a few weeks back, there's no word in the Greek New Testament or the Greek of the New Testament that means obey like we think of it. Like, I say it, you do it just because I said it. That's not there. And the two words we looked at earlier were about the difference between hearing and listening, right? That experience every parent has. Telling your child, I know you heard me, but I don't think you're listening, right? Of moving from simply the sound hitting the mechanical functions of the brain, but actually to the head and being processed, right? We talked about that, right? This one is a whole different take. This word is rooted in the idea of seeing. It's like when, as a parent, you say to your child, look me in the eyes when I'm talking to you, because I want your focus, right? All he's saying here, teaching them to focus complete, teaching us to focus complete undivided attention on everything that Jesus has said. So between the hearing of his word with attentive listening and the reading of his word with attentive focus, his commands make their way into our heart. All of that fits into the model of making disciples. Now, whose discipleship am I first and foremost responsible for? My own exposing myself as often as I can, as frequently as I can, and with as much both hearing and attention as I can to the content of what Jesus said. Paying attention in the written word to what Jesus has said. And then as a believer, helping every believer whom I have contact with to do the same thing. My responsibilities as a pastor come after all of that. Because those first two areas of responsibility our own discipleship, and then that of every person we have come in contact with as a follower of Christ, we all share that responsibility. One of, the, one of the unfortunate misunderstandings that all too often goes with the Great Commission is we take the responsibility for it and put it on a select few within the body of Christ, which is completely foreign to everything taught in the, body of, in the Word of God. So Jesus makes that very clear, and then he says this, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. That word, I am with you, begins with that little expression, lo. Again, that's just another word, look. Look at what I'm saying. Pay attention to what I'm saying. I am with you always. Know this, he says. It's an acknowledgement that the task he is giving them is large. It is overwhelming, but he'll always be with us. He'll always be with us. So we have a text before us that's both a command to make disciples of all nations, to first of all be a disciple, and then to engage with others in the process of becoming disciples, to do that by accepting my responsibility in reaching out to others, my responsibility to introducing others to the fact that new life only comes after death through the figure of baptism, and then helping everyone I come in contact with, beginning with myself, to focus on the content of Jesus' teaching. And I do that with the promise that he will be there in the doing. That is why his promise is there. That's why the promise of his authority is there. 
He will be with us in the doing. And again, he's not just talking to those of us who are in leadership. He's not just talking to these disciples. Some have suggested that. He's just talking to these guys. Well, he just promised them he'd be there till the end of the age. These guys are not going to be there till the end of the age. His promise is much bigger than that. The answer of who he's talking about is two parts. First of all, the church, his body in the world. Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy 2, 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. That's the biblical model. Hearing, acting upon, putting into practice, and then teaching it to others in a way they can follow. And again, that extends to all of us. And then we need to acknowledge that it's not just a task for the church, it's one for us as individuals. Part of the beauty of the New Testament is the, are the accounts of individuals that some, have an encounter with the person of Christ and then somehow become these evangelistic machines even when nobody told them to. Think of the woman at the well who went into a pagan city and told everybody there everything about Jesus. And the whole city came out and listened to him. You think about the people in John 12 that uh, after Jesus had, been, had raised Lazarus from the tomb, it said that every person was there, was busy telling everybody they knew about the fact that Jesus had raised a dead man. Nobody gave those people a title. Nobody told them they had a job to do. They went out and they did it. And that is the essence. That is truly the essence of the commission. When everyone who was a follower of Christ, I'll never forget... Um, hearing Billy Graham say once that his ministry was doomed to failure. He said, my ministry is doomed to failure. He said, I can fill a stadium every night for the rest of my natural life. I won't get the job done. But if I can fill a stadium once and the people in that stadium take the message and share it, my job will be complete. So the onus is always on us. The onus is always on us. When I think of the Great Commission, this is how I think of it. When I think of this passage of Scripture, this is how I think of it. Um, when I used to serve in the engine room on the, on, the, on the Coast Guard Cutter Sedge, we had a book in the engine room. Any of you that have been in the maritime service, you've been in the engine room, you know about this book because they all have it. It was a big ledger book, and it was always open. It was never closed. It would lay on the, uh, the workstand, the office, of, uh, the, the, well, the stand for the watch officer who ran the engine room. And in it, every day, either the engineering officer or the, or the engineering chief would come down and they would write all the special tasks for that day. Um, if we were going to get underway, they'd write it down. If they wanted the oil change and something, they'd write it down. Whatever they wanted, they would write it down. And then it was the job of the watch officer, which would be me, to come up and go, okay, so-and-so is going to do this, so -and -so, I'm going to do that one myself, and on down the list, and see to it that it was done, right? It was, it was specific in what needed to be done, but general, and then it gave me the room to do what I needed to do. And so every page in that book is different. And if you go back through the pages, you can read a wonderful history of what's happened in that engine room. But here's the key. The first page of that book was the most important one. Because every year, or every time that we, every time we filled the book and had to get a new book, before they closed the old book, they get the new book out, and the engineering officer would come down, and he would write a set of orders that were the same for every day. Whatever else was going on, those things got done. They were called the standing orders. 
And the beauty of that was, if you ever looked at the specifics of the daily order and got confused, or God forbid you actually finish all of it, if you ever had any questions for any reasons what you were supposed to be doing, just go back to that first page. Every day, that first page. You couldn't go wrong. Every day was different. Every day had its unique challenges, but you could never go wrong by going back to the first page. When in doubt, go back to the standing rules. Matthew 28, those two verses are standing orders. If you ever wonder, as a follower of Christ, what should I be doing? It's right there. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord, and how in it, Lord, you give us so much in your word. You, get it, you give us so much that explains uh, the doctrines that we value and treasure, your relationship to the Father and, and the relationship of the Spirit and how that works together. And although we don't have all the answers we'd like, we have enough there to establish an understanding and move on it, Father. And you give us instructions as to how the church is going to operate and, and marvelously give us the flexibility in our own cultural setting. You give us so much that that background and understanding, Father, you give us so much. And then, Father, you also give us the specifics we need for our lives, Father. That we never, Father, we'd never have to fear being lost and not know what to do. There may be some challenges in discovering the specifics, Lord, but we know that, that the, the general instructions that will get us moving in the right direction, even if we're in a challenging situation, Father, if it's at work or in family or relationship, even if we're in a challenging situation, Father, we can go back to those basic things, those standing orders, and find the directions to get us moving in the right order. And from that, we will find the specifics you have for us in the exact moment that we walk in. God, you are so good to us. And we always want to be found aggressive in looking to you for your directions. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.